Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. I know. We are four episodes into this series, and North Korea hasn't even been founded yet. I really want to get to the good stuff. And the good stuff really happens or starts happening with the Korean War. I thought we'd get there this episode, but I wanted to take a little bit of time to focus on the foundation of the North Korean state and also a lot of the prevailing ideology that went into it at the time of creation. For those of you keeping track at home, this does mean that the series just got a little bit longer. It'll be over a dozen episodes. This probably isn't even the last time that will happen. We'll see. Anyway, for a brief moment, it seemed like the Korean Peninsula might be a single, unified, independent country following World War II. And for a moment, it was. Following the defeat of its occupier Japan, Korea did experience another brief moment of unified independence. For only really the second time in its entire history, it had been a unified independent peninsula at the very end of the 1800s, when it had been the Empire of Korea. And it is a unified independent country again, right now, just after World War II. After the war, Japanese occupiers, they knew that they were on their way out and prepared a handover and ended up working with Korean independence leaders who formed a new government called the People's Republic of Korea. So this is huge. Korea, which has been occupied so long since 1910, is free again. And by the way, this country, the People's Republic of Korea, I know that sounds like a sort of communist name to modern ears what with a people and a republic, but in 1945, that's just what it seems a lot of places were calling themselves. So it was left-leaning, but it was not specifically communist. Not yet. However, it didn't really take long for Allied troops to start occupying Japan's old territory. And just like in Europe where the Soviets occupied East Germany and the Allies occupied what would become West Germany, the United States and the Soviet Union decided to rummage through and divide Japan's old stuff. So the United States occupied mainland Japan and the southern part of the Korean Peninsula, and Soviet forces swept into what is now North Korea. Now, I can't help but think about this, but this is kind of a alternate history linchpin type thing. The Soviet Union maybe might have been able to make some inroads into actual Japan. Had they been able to do that, well, things would have been different. We have no way of saying what things would have been different, but it's certainly interesting to think about. Instead, unlike in Germany, where an Axis power was divided, in this case, you just had an Axis power's old possession divided. Now, the Americans and the Soviets needed to agree upon a border. And you might think that when American and Soviet officials were talking about what border they would mutually agree upon, they would take into account things like natural borders, mountains and rivers and such, things like the extent of major metropolitan areas, the extent of various industrial and agrarian zones, all that sort of thing, to make sure that they really carefully divided the Korean peninsula amongst themselves. 
you might think they would do that. They did not do that. Instead, they just drew a straight line across a map they got from National Geographic at the 38th parallel. Yes, really, that was it. The United States and the Soviet Union just walked into Korea, got out a National Geographic and a ruler, and said, I guess that's where our guys go. In February of 1946, the short-lived People's Republic of Korea was gone for a few reasons. Um, In the South, much of what the People's Republic was going for was way too left-leaning. The constitution of the new potential country that had only existed for a few months included things like taking land from former Japanese collaborators, redistributing it, dividing it up, and also material rights for Korean citizens. That was a bit too close to communism for the American occupiers, so what ended up happening there was a strongman named Syngman Rhee took power. We'll talk about him a bit later. Later in this series, I am going to be doing an episode on what South Korea got up to in the latter part of the 20th century, but we're not quite there yet. Meanwhile, in the North, one of the most popular political figures was a guy called Cho Man-sik, and he'd been based out of Pyongyang throughout Japanese occupation, and in another world, he might have become a leader of North Korea, or maybe even all of Korea. He'd participated in the March 1st movement, he was a major proponent of Korean independence, and he was a leftist who supposedly was Stalin's first initial pick to lead the Soviet Union's new potential satellite. However, Cho Man-sik, leftist though he was, was not a fan of communism, and he was not a fan of foreign domination, and he was not a fan of Joseph Stalin. He had just had to deal with Japanese occupation. He just had to deal with the cult of personality based around Hirohito. And he wasn't about to trade that for foreign domination by the Red Army or a cult of personality around Joseph Stalin. So, instead of this guy who had real popular support and a lot of real legitimacy in northern Korea, Stalin picked someone else, someone he thought he could control. Kim Song-ju, who at this point was going by the nom de guerre Kim Il-sung. And that totally humble name, by the way, means Kim become the son. By the way, fun fact, Joseph Stalin's real name? Not Stalin. His real name was Dugashvili, but he changed it because that sounded too ethnically Georgian, and Stalin means man of steel. Anyway, Stalin picked this guy who had been a major in the Red Army fighting against the Japanese and who had briefly had success taking a Korean town just south of the Yalu River for a couple of hours as his hand-picked puppet for the Soviet part of Korea. And at this point, Kim Il-sung has basically no education or experience. He has essentially eight years of formal education. He doesn't really have any leadership experience other than military experience. He's never held a post in government And he doesn't even speak Korean very well. But, and we can't be sure of this, but this is what a lot of historians seem to think, that for Soviet officials, that was a good thing. And that made Kim Il-sung possibly easy to control. If he didn't know what he was doing, if he didn't even speak Korean terribly well, well, he'd be weak and he'd have to rely on his handlers, that is, the Soviet Union, to tell him what to do. And make no mistake... North Korea was very much designed to be a Soviet satellite. 
Soviet officials decided on the structure of local governments, what the legislature would be composed of, who would get to be members of the legislature, you know, powers of the executive. Soviet authorities drafted the constitution, and Stalin himself gave it its final edits. Kim Il-sung, make no mistake, is not the founder of North Korea. Joseph Stalin is. Kim Il-sung received a constitution from Stalin and his officials and made it the foundation of their dictatorship. However, things also got a little weird. Almost immediately after World War II, Kim Il-sung didn't just content himself with being a Soviet toady. Instead, the new leader and his leadership structure ended up repurposing a lot of what had ended up being built under Japanese occupation. And this is important. There were two big strains of nationalism that ended up happening during Japanese occupation. The first I talked about earlier, all that stuff about Japan and Korea being a united people and really ethnically pure, being the only truly civilized folks in the world, better than everyone else, especially China. The Kim regime ended up using a lot of that, filing off the serial numbers, just taking Japan out of the equation, and repurposing that idea of ethno-nationalistic specialness and applying it to Korea. Now, how'd he go about doing that? Well, there were plenty of Korean nationalists on the other side of the equation who had been building an idea of Korean nationhood under Japanese occupation. I want to read you a quote from an author called B.R. Myers, who wrote a book called The Cleanest Race. In it, he talks about how North Koreans see themselves and about how the Kim regime has gone about injecting a whole lot of kind of ethno-nationalism and kind of creepy racial superiority into their regime. Myers writes, quote, Nationalist intellectuals attempted to counter this propaganda, that is, Japanese propaganda, by reviving interests in the legend of Tangun. Set down an anthology of folktales in 1284, then largely ignored for centuries, it told how this half-divine figure had inaugurated the first Korean kingdom with his seed in 233 BC. As the nationalists saw it, this tale gave the Koreans their own pure bloodline, a civilization grounded in a unique culture and over four millennia of history to their colonizers three, again, their colonizers being the Japanese. One writer even tried to establish Mount Piktu, a volcanic mountain on the border with China, as Tengun's birthplace, and a counterpart to Japan's sacred Mount Fuji. The South Korean historian Yi Yong-hun put it best, the myths and symbols needed to form a nation were coined new in the awareness of Japan's myths and symbols in opposition to and in emulation of them, unquote. By the way, remember Mount Pikdu, which I mentioned in that quote from Myers, is the same mountain that later North Korean propaganda would say Kim Il-sung had secretly been leading resistance fighters from. So again, that kind of folktale, that mountain becomes important during Japanese occupation, it becomes important to an idea of a Korean nation, and later on, of course, the Kim regime says, hey, it's where we were hanging out this whole time. Myers also goes on to talk about how the Kim regime at this early stage does not do a particularly good job of talking about communism. They are basically porting over things from China and the Soviet Union and just taking what is handed to them. 
But a lot of the early propaganda does a great job of repurposing old Korean nationalist and Japanese propaganda. And a lot of the propagandists that were working initially for Kim Il-sung had cut their teeth during the occupation, sometimes as Korean nationalists and sometimes as Japanese collaborators. Myers says, quote, But retaining the emperor's administrators and technocrats was one thing, and retaining his propagandist another, or so one would have thought. According to Marxism-Leninism, a communist party's main task lies in infusing the masses with revolutionary consciousness. It is remarkable, therefore, that when the North Korean Federation of Literature and Art was established in March 1946, most of the top posts were well-known veterans of the wartime cultural apparatus. No writer was excluded from the party or its cultural organizations due to pro-Japanese activities, let alone imprisoned for them. And Myers strongly emphasizes that a lot of the propaganda they had to work with stressed Korean nationalistic virtue. Stressed Korean nationalistic virtue. Sure, Kim Il-sung was a Soviet puppet. Uh, Sure, you had red flags and expressions in the direction of Soviet-style communism and Stalinism. But really, it was just good old nationalism left over from World War II that provided the basis of the North Korean state. And when you look at North Korea from that angle, as Myers does, it ends up making a lot more sense. The idea of North Korean exceptionalism and purity and just general specialness because of who they are is something that's going to come up in North Korean propaganda and also in North Korean official attitudes again and again and again. Next episode, though, war. As always, this is a member-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a supporter. Thank you, everyone who does so every month. We could not pay for the expenses of this thing without your support. Appreciate it immensely. Uh, I'm on social media, on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. On Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Uh, go to iTunes, give the podcast ratings and reviews. That helps other people find it. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.